Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and brutalize and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Obviously, we talk, uh, well, quite a lot about Section 230 on this podcast, uh, and it's often because people don't really understand what Section 230 is really about. Uh, and that's actually because, to be, to be charitable, <laughs> in, in many cases, that's because what the law actually does is not necessarily all that obvious if you're not that deep in the weeds of, of how this works and, and what it's like to, to be running a company that hosts third-party speech. And one key point that we've tried to highlight a lot over the past few years are the, the real benefit of Section 230 is in the procedural benefits, especially for smaller companies. Um, since so many people have bought into the kind of false narrative that Section 230 is some sort of special gift to the big tech companies. The reality, however, is that it's really smaller companies that are significantly more protected by Section 230, in part because of the nature of how Section 230 actually works, and that is that it is a procedural benefit. It gets frivolous lawsuits kicked out of court much earlier at a point when the cost is well, still cumbersome, uh, hopefully not quite as deadly as a much longer and more thorough lawsuit. Uh, thankfully, for most of the people listening to this, you've probably uh, hopefully never had to directly understand this or, or deal with it uh, on a personal level. Uh, but the truth is that the amount of time, effort, and money that it takes to defend a lawsuit can be absolutely all-consuming and really kind of overwhelming. And that is what can often destroy small businesses. While the truth is that larger businesses are able to just kind of call up their legal department and have them handle it. And it might be something of a nuisance, but not to the same level and not to, to the same impact. There's a new study that just came out uh, from Elizabeth Banker at the Chamber of Prog Progress that details all of this. Uh, it's a really great paper. Uh, it's a detailed study on this very issue. And the title of the paper is Understanding Section 230 and the Impact of Litigation on Small Providers. It goes through a variety of different case studies. Uh, it explores the actual costs of these lawsuits in, in all different ways and the impact of these lawsuits on speech uh, and also how lawsuits are often used to attack speech. And the paper also covers uh, a variety of possible ways to, to uh, combat this and, and fix these scenarios, including keeping Section 230 working the way, the way it does. Uh, so we are thrilled to have Elizabeth on the podcast to talk about the paper. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Great. So... The, the paper is obviously really near and dear to my heart. It's something that, that I've been really fascinated in and try to talk to people about, but I think your paper, you know, goes really deep and, and is really thorough and, and really explores these issues and has data and evidence to back it up and lots of citations. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy <laughs> that it's out. Uh, but, but I, I did want to ask, you know, what made you decide to focus on this particular angle uh, of the Section 230 debate? 
Well, that's a, a good question. Um, I think you know, part of my background has actually been at being at some of the bigger companies that get these uh -huh. lawsuits. And you know, it can be quite easy for a larger provider to file a motion to dismiss based on Section 230, have the case dismissed, maybe it gets appealed. <laughs> you know, there's a right. hearing on the appeal and then it's over. Um, and you, I was doing a review of cases um, in my prior role at the Internet Association. And in several of the cases that I encountered, I just read about these small companies that had vastly different experiences. Um, and I'm actually a former small business owner. Um, and so, you know, I think about it through that lens and, you know, just knowing what it's like to be, you know, literally, um, you know, if, if, you know, the right amount of income doesn't come in, you know, you're not <laughs> going to break even for the month. So the right. idea of having to spend a like, hundred thousand um, dollars to, to even have a chance to push back on a really frivolous lawsuit, you know, I understood what that impact was, and I was really interested to see if there would be a way to um, not just quantify that, but also really portray what the people involved as defendants in these lawsuits go through. Um, I think, you know, you've talked about your own experience, and I think mm -hmm. that's that's really powerful. And I think um, what I wanted to do is, is um, try and pull in um, some more of that for a, a broader group of, of individuals and organizations. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that I've noticed certainly is that like a lot of companies, smaller companies actually don't really want to talk about the experience. I mean, with, with the possible exception of like, you know, um, small company owners commiserating <laughs> over drinks or whatever, but like going public with, with, you know, the real impact of these lawsuits is something that um, a lot of the companies don't want to do. And it's often, frankly, it's recommended against. I mean, the, you know, I've seen lawyers say, no, no, you should never talk about, you know, how much these lawsuits actually impact you and and how much, because that, that sort of plays into the reasons why some of the lawsuits are being filed in the first place. Um, and I, and I get that. So, um, like, did, did you have trouble, like, you know, finding examples or, or, or finding companies that you could talk to, to, to understand these things? You know, I, well, one of the challenges is that some of the companies aren't around anymore. Right. Uh, yes. So, you know, one, one lawsuit might be enough to convince particularly people who, I mean, some of the people sued were hobbyists. This isn't a business. Right. Um, and so one experience like that can be enough to, to turn somebody off. Um, and then the, the other piece of it that's really interesting when you talk about, you know, lawyers will advise you not to talk about the lawsuit, um, is that in a, at least a few of the cases that I, I researched, after companies posted something on like the company blog about mm -hmm. the lawsuit, even saying something as simple as, you know, it lacked merit, an additional claim was added to their lawsuit <laughs> yes. claiming that, that they defamed the plaintiff by questioning the merit of the lawsuit. Yep. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's uh, definitely a dangerous thing. Um, and, and I think it has 
really made people really quiet um, about the experience. But we were lucky to find um, at least, you know, a, a good handful of organizations who wanted to to communicate, particularly with their users, right. about um, you know what they were going through in terms of the litigation. And, you know, in some cases, it was because they wanted to ask for financial help um, right. or other support. In some cases, it was because a certain portion of their user base was also being sued. Right. Um, and in, in some cases, there were subpoenas trying to unmask the identities of people who were posting under a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, for providers, um, particularly those that, that provide a forum for discussing really serious issues, and in some cases, um, like the All Nurses bot forum, there were real privacy issues with identifying individual nurses who might be speaking on the platform, you know, they wanted to reassure users that they were going to do everything in their power to protect their privacy. Yeah. That, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, so, you know, one element of this that, that I appreciate in the papers that, you know, the, well, there are a few things. One is that, you know, costs can be measured in all sorts of different ways. Right. And, and, you know, you discuss that very clearly stated clearly in the paper, which I appreciate that there are costs beyond just the legal costs. I think a lot of the discussions about this focus entirely on the legal costs and don't recognize that, like, if you're a small business, if you're a three person business or a 10 person business or a 20 person business, you know, smaller businesses, you know, having to, even, you know, you'll, you beyond spending the money to hire the lawyers. You have to spend a, a ridiculous amount of time with the lawyers to, to go through things. I mean, it depends on the different types of cases, obviously. And if if it gets to a point where there's discovery, then like the costs just go through the roof. But again, not just the cost, just the time. You know, the fact that you might have to, you know, take multiple days out for, for a deposition that you can't be doing work. You know, when you're a small company that's living on the edge, it's it's really, really intense. Um, and that, again, can sort of push push you over the edge. Um, and so I really appreciate the fact that the, 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 the paper covers that. But even if you just focus on the, the legal costs, which people do, I think most people vastly underestimate the actual legal costs in defending a lawsuit. And there's this weird belief, and we saw it, you know, I remember very clearly, like when, when we got sued, you know, we had commenters who came and like, don't hire a lawyer, just go into court and like, say like, this is wrong. And like, the judge will, will understand. I was like, that's not how any of this works. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I do like in the paper, you do try and quantify some of the legal costs as well. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about the process of, of doing that? Sure. Um, you know, one of the real challenges of understanding the cost of this type of litigation is that the U.S. system, I'm sure you were well aware of this, yes. is um, <laughs> it is not a loser pays system. Right. It is each party pays their own costs as a general rule, unless there is some sort of specific statute that um, enables some cost recovery for a prevailing party. So, you know, for that reason, there's very little um, in court records about the costs. Um, so what I needed to do was comb through these cases and their dockets to see where there were um, opportunities for parties to try and seek some type of um, 
you know, award to offset some of their cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I was able to find that in, in, you know, at least a few instances. Um, and, you know, I struggled a little bit about how to present it because I think the other thing that people may assume about recovering costs in litigation is that your actual legal bill gets paid, which mm-hmm. that is also not how the system <laughs> not, works. Not at all. Right. Um, and uh, without getting into the nitty gritty of Lodestar calculations um, and all of that, you know, I think it, it's important to try and put some context around it to say, no, what, what people get is based on the judge's discretion, um, not based on the actual lawyers in the right. proceeding, but on like an average lawyer in that <laughs> geographic area um, and the amount of time the judge thinks they should have spent rather than the time they actually did. Um, and so you know, trying to, to kind of put all of that in context was, was challenging. Yeah, and and I think you did a really good job. There's a chart in the paper that that details you know a number of different cases that that highlight you know, and these are again sort of a very limited subset of actual cases because they're cases where there were there there was the possibility of recovering um, you know fees, usually in anti-slap. Uh, where where states have specific types of anti-slap laws that allow for the recovery of fees. Um, but you know what I what I think is really great about the chart is you sort of you know show the the fees requested and then the fees granted, which are not always the same. Sometimes they are. Sometimes you will get a judge who will say, "Yeah, right, you know this this looks correct." Um, but you know, having read through many of the decisions on fee awards, like you see, like judges have their own belief. Like, well, you know, you should have done this differently. And in fact, you know, in in the paper, you have this. You have the one great example of the the all nurses case where they talked about, I I forget the exact numbers now, but I think they had said, you know, we spent like $180,000 on, on discovery costs, which, you know, $180,000 for a small company is an awful lot of money. Uh, And people might say, how can, how can it cost that much? It can like discovery costs just go, as I said, they, they get out of hand really, really quickly, especially when you have to search through huge, you know, huge files uh, or a huge number of files. Um, And the judge basically said, oh, you could have done that cheaper and awarded them like some tiny fraction. I don't even remember what it was, but it was maybe 20 It was around 30,000. Okay. So like 30,000, they asked for 180 and they, they got maybe 30,000. And, uh, you know, think about that, right? You know, that the 180,000 was, was money they were actually billed, right? So, you know, so they get back 30,000, like, great, that's 30,000, but they still had to shell out the 150. Um, and that's not even counting all of these other things as well. And again, the time and the distraction. Um, and so I, I you know, I, I, that's one of the things that I, I really appreciated about the paper is like, you know, actually bringing some of this out into the open. Um Along those lines, one other thing that I, I really, really appreciate in the paper is that you discuss briefly somewhat the, the the issue with insurance, because I've heard, you know, some lawyers, and in fact, without maybe naming names, there's there's a lawyer in particular who's, who's very much against Section 230 and has said repeatedly, um, well, you know, yeah, you know, there'll be more litigation, but it's fine because insurance will cover it. Um, and your paper touches on that and basically says like it's not that easy <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about about sort of what you, what you found with the insurance part of it sure it's um you know, 
it sounds great in theory. Um, yes. but, uh, you know, as, as somebody who lives in California, um, I'm going to compare it to earthquake insurance, um, which is uh, very familiar. <laughs> the only thing it insures you against is a total loss. Right. Um, and even in that case, if you do have a total loss, you have a huge deductible that you're going to have to pay um, up front, in addition to paying these premiums that are really out of reach for many small businesses. Um, you know, the SBA itself does research on, you know, how many small businesses have this type of insurance. And, you know, it's a very small number. Um, and so I think, you know, the cost is a big challenge. I think, you know, we see it, um, particularly in the startup industry. I mean, nobody, when they're creating their service, thinks about all of the bad things that could possibly happen. Right. Um, and this type of insurance, you know, may just not be something that they think about. Um, it may not seem like something that's worth the investment um, really early on uh, for a company. And then, you know, there's there's just some practical things. Even if you have insurance, you may end up fighting with your insurer about whether or not it really is covered under the policy. Yes. Um, and that's something that happens to big companies, too. Um, <laughs> yes, so, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, then, the fact is the, the insurance companies kind of specialize in trying to come up with ways to reject claims, right? So, yes. like, you know, I, I, they're, they're not in it for the, for the to help you. <laughs> right. Anyone who's ever been in a, in a car accident, even a right. minor one, and tried to get it fixed. <laughs> yes. Um, think about yes. that, but like, you know, with hundreds of thousands of dollars or more on the line. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other thing, um, and really why it is not the answer uh, that your anti-230 <laughs> activist <laughs> thinks it is, is, you know, it going back again to car insurance. If you are a driver who gets in a lot of accidents, your car insurance is going to go up. Same way with lawsuits. Um, if you do have insurance and you get sued and they have to pay a claim, it could just be either impossible to get coverage or yeah. cost prohibitive um, if you could find some an insurer willing to take the risk. Yeah, and and that is definitely true. And I think I think you you there's an article that I keep pointing people to, and I think you cited it in your in your paper too, um, that that Mother Jones uh, wrote last year. They've been sued a bunch, where they they talk about this a little bit. I had meant to write up an article directly about it, and I just never got around to it. But uh, so I'm glad that this sort of brings it up again, where they talked about I, I forget the number, but it was some crazy number. Like you know, they've been sued a whole bunch of times. And then all every insurance company was rejecting them for a policy. And I think they said they went, they, they like tried to get insurance from like forty five different companies, and you know that's about as many insurance companies as there are. Frankly, you start to run out, uh, you know, of the list. Mm -hmm. And then they finally found one that had you know much much lower coverage for much much more expense. Um, and you know, and I've I've spoken to other small businesses um, that you know, who have been sued a few times and who have said that they've gotten hit with clearly bogus lawsuits that their insurance company was like, we need to settle this because we've we've spent too much money defending you in other cases. So we're just going to settle it, even though it's clearly frivolous. We're going to pay this guy, you know, $20,000 to go away or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, for, for 
you know, that's damaging in its own way. Right. So like, you know, and then the rates are just going to keep going up and the coverage keeps going down. So the idea that the insurance market is magically there and is going to protect companies, I think, is is really wrong. And so I'm I'm also really glad that that was brought up because it's something that I think very few people, you know, think about um, or, or even realize is happening. Yeah. And there's, I mean, that's like the cost issues. There's very little data out there on it. Um so yeah. it, was, it was difficult to find even even what I, I was able to scrape together. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know it's 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 a good thing. But again, it's it's another one that people just don't really want to talk about. Um, but I, I do think it's important. You know, an, another thing that I think, you know, is, is touched on in the paper that is also not very well understood. I mean, again, the paper is just so great for for like highlighting all of these ideas that people just don't understand if you haven't gone through it. And, and again, like consider yourself really lucky if you've never gone through a lawsuit is is just how long these lawsuits go and 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 how much that takes out of companies, right? Where you have this sort of cloud hanging over your head. Um, and, and again, people just assume, like, like I mentioned, you know, somebody said, just go into the court and say like, you know, here's the proof I didn't do it or whatever. <laughs> and the judge is just going to make it go away. You know, that's not how it works, you know? Uh, and you know, you're going to have this hang over your head for, for years. Um, and, and in some cases, you know, many, many years, these things can take a really long time. Um, and all of that is, is costly, not just in money, but in time and attention. Um, and I, and I think people don't, don't really understand that. Um, I do wonder, and you touch on this a little bit in the, in the paper, especially on the, the point of the, the fee recovery in the, in the cases where there are, are fee recovery, my sense and, and, you know, I don't know that if you know any better than I do. My my sense is that you know when these kinds of issues are brought up to judges, they don't much care. Um, to, you know, to them, they're like, you know, look, this is this is the the way the judicial system works. You know, the judicial system, if it costs you lots of money and takes up all your time, that's not our problem. That's that's you know that's how it works, and they seem perfectly happy with it, and they think that's there's some sort of fairness built into it. Um, do, do you sense that or, or what? I, I mean, it's not, that's not really the point of the paper, but I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about, you know, whether or not judges ever actually recognize the impact that this is having on, on the, especially on the frivolous lawsuits. You, I have seen judges um, that have commented on it. I tried to include um, some, some quotes yeah. that show judges who are frustrated. But one of the other things I thought was really important to call out, and not necessarily to say that these are bad things, but I do think it's important people understand how our judicial system works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the U.S., we have a real bias towards allowing people due process or, you know, allowing people their day in court. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, there are certain um, rules uh, that, that kind of work to a, a plaintiff's favor um, that can have a really devastating impact for particularly small providers when when they're sued, um, even in a frivolous case. And, you know, things like that are the ability to amend a complaint multiple times, even after there's been a ruling on a motion to dismiss. So you know, parties may have to submit and argue multiple motions to dismiss right. um, a case that, that lacks merit. 
Um, the right to appeal. Um, everybody pretty much gets the right to appeal um, sure. as long as they're doing it at the right stage. Um, um, and you know, also things like um, the the rules around sanctioning um, parties for engaging in even harassing behavior um, through the court system. Um, you know, judges have a lot of discretion, but they are really reluctant to exercise it um, because you know, we do as a country put a lot of value on this idea of people getting their day in court. And you know, so sanctioning um, an attorney or a party representing themselves, it kind of cuts against that. Yeah. And um, so I, I put a few examples of sanction awards that I saw in the paper and they were all really small dollar amounts, <laughs> yeah. particularly when you compare that chart to, you know, the, the chart of how much yeah. defendants were paying to represent themselves. Um, and, you know, actually I think, um, you know, there was, um, some discussion in the paper about the possibility that some plaintiffs, particularly those that are actually bringing the lawsuit for the purpose of trying to put the defendant out of business, can really use different aspects of the court system to draw out the case and make it more expensive for the defendant. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting thing in that, you know, I, I think most people recognize that like due process and day in court, these are principles that make sense and, and that I think, you know, we should value. But you when you begin to recognize that that people are effectively abusing that system and recognizing that that gives them power and the power to to harm and to, you know, to to burden um, you know, people, companies, speech that they dislike, uh, you know, it's it is abused that way. And and it feels like, you know, Again, I, I understand why the courts and 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 you know and many judges give them lots and lots of leeway. You don't want to be too aggressive and and shut down a perfectly legitimate case. I, I understand that, um, but it does feel like they are incredibly slow to actually getting around to realizing like here is someone who is clearly abusing the judicial system, you know, wasting a bunch of the judicial system's time and money as well, um, you know, in order to, you know, out of spite and vengeance, you know, rather than any kind of legitimate claim. And I, I do wish that there, there were better, better systems to, to get at that. And, and so, you know, that gets to sort of the underlying point, I think, of, of the paper, um, which is, you know, one, certainly to talk about you know, the value of Section 230 here. And, and you know, I, I've sort of been assuming that that everybody listening understands that, but I, I we should tie that back together uh, just so that people do understand, like all of the stuff that we've been talking about here, the costs and the time and, and all this is something that Section 230 deals with and, and helps with because it allows you to go in very early at that motion to dismiss stage, which again, you know, if you don't know the civil procedure uh, thing here, but like motion to dismiss is kind of the very very first thing that you can do effectively uh, and 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 kind of the least lift I mean there's 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 more to it than that but um, you know a, a relatively relatively less cost um, because it doesn't involve any any additional evidence or anything you're just going on uh, you know off of the complaint you're saying this even if this complaint is true it should be dismissed for 
X, Y, and Z. And, and Section 230 allows you to do that and hopefully get the case dismissed at that early stage, thereby lessening the, the, the cost. Without that, if you have to go to other stages, you know, summary judgment, discovery, you know, God forbid a trial, you know, <laughs> which just would make all of this crazy and then and then dealing with appeals and everything like that, like the costs are, are an order or orders of magnitude greater. Um, and so what Section 230 does in dealing with all of this and why one of the one of the key reasons why it's so important is not this sort of like general immunity, but this idea that it gets these frivolous cases tossed out early at, you know, at a lower expense. Um, and I don't think many people recognize that no matter how many times I scream about it. Um <laughs> And so I think the paper does a really good job of kind of highlighting that point. But then it also discusses other potential remedies, and it talks about anti-slap laws, for for example, which is another thing that I've I've spent a lot of time talking about. But do you want to talk a little bit about about kind of that that intersection of anti-slap and Section two thirty? Right. So um, you know, anti-slap has it's been around a while. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we uh, in California we've we've got a pretty good anti-slap law. Um, you know, there are about 32 other uh, jurisdictions in the U.S. that have anti-slap laws. Um, they vary in quality immensely. Um, but what anti-slap seeks to do is is kind of the same thing that Section 230 seeks to do. It, um, you know, creates a mechanism for a defendant to bring what is a lawsuit targeting protected speech um, to a quick end, um, but it can also give them that cost recovery. Um, it can, you know, accelerate appeals. Um, you know, potentially stay discovery, and so it can limit costs, um, allow for the possibility of of cost recovery, and you know, as a byproduct of that, you know, when people know that they have a tool like this at their disposal, they're a lot less likely to think, well maybe I should settle, or maybe I should just take this down and see if I can make this person go away. And, you know, particularly when we talk about speech that's happening on really small platforms, um, you know, where they're not going to be able to bear the cost of extended litigation, a tool like an anti-slap law is really important. Um, that is not to say it's a replacement for Section 230. I think it's really important to talk about them as being a complement to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, over the years, there's been call for a federal anti-slap law, and I, you know, I think that is you know a really great idea. Um, you know, I don't know in the, the current climate uh, whether <laughs> anyone will uh, take me up on that. But, um, you know, I, I think it's really important and it would make such a big difference. Um, you know, we, keep, we keep talking about the all nurses example, but um, there was a reason why it was featured in yeah. uh, the paper. It uh, hits a lot of these issues. And, you know, Minnesota actually did have an anti-slap law for a while and they got struck down as being unconstitutional. Um, they may have a new one, um, but it was not available for the particular lawsuit um, because it was just really narrow. Right. Um, 
And so they didn't have the benefit of that mechanism. Um, whereas you can compare that to some of the experiences that, um, you know, defendants whose cases were, you know, uh, tried under California law, who really came out um, with much better results, um, you know, cases over more quickly um, and uh, costs awards at the end. Yeah. And, and you know, anti-slap laws matter, but it, it is it is very difficult in the in this scenario right now that we're in where you have some states, you know, it's this patchwork of, of laws, as you mentioned. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about the Internet, the Internet goes everywhere. So, you know, I think as, as people know in, in the, you know, when, when we were sued in Massachusetts, Massachusetts has a very weak anti-slap law that didn't apply to, to our scenario. But I'm in California and, and I believe I'm protected by California's anti-slap law, but the court in Massachusetts said no. Um, and so even though, you know, I, you know, should feel like I should be protected by the anti-slap law of, of my state, um, you know, as long as you target the lawsuit somewhere else, you know, a court might might judge otherwise. And then we have, you know, the, one of the issues and one of the reasons why we need a federal anti-slap law is that a number of courts have decided that state anti-slap laws cannot apply in federal court. There's a whole procedural discussion <laughs> of, of why they, they believe that, uh, and it's frustrating to me. But, <laughs> um, you know, there are a lot of federal courts where even if the state has an anti-slap law, it can't be applied. Um, and that, you know, so, so you lose out on the benefits of that. Um, and so, you know, I, I think having real, you know, thorough, complete California-style anti-slap laws in every state and at the federal level is is really really necessary but it doesn't feel like there's there's much appetite for that um unfortunately um i do want to uh, you, you mentioned this a little bit but i do want to circle back on it because it is important because i have heard people bring up a few times in discussions around anti-slap law like you know i think the question i've heard is like would you trade section 230 for that federal anti-slap law and and good state anti-slap laws everywhere and and you know my answer is also no like i think you need the two of them together because they do different things there there may be some overlap at the edge um but i think they're both important and that they work hand in hand but i i, I just wanted to know if you wanted to address that point a little bit more since i've heard it a few times no, absolutely. Um, I, th I think it's really important to to talk about them um, yeah. as a compliment. Um, yeah. And I don't think it's in an either or situation at all, because, you know, one of the ways that people get good results using, for example, the California anti-slap statute is by showing um, for part of uh, what they need to to be able to show to prevail on an anti-slap motion to strike is that they're going to prevail in, mm -hmm. in the suit. And section 230 is kind of that missing ingredient or the, the really easy way to make that argument rather. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. Um, and I think it's just really important to stay focused on that. And then, you know, not every, lawsuit. I mean, my paper w focused on speech, 
Um, but that, you know, it's not just defamation and, and kind of the related claims that Section 230 applies to. It's not just these types of forms that are, are designed to facilitate speech that Section 230 protects. Um, and so, you know, I was looking at kind of a narrow Right. Um, kind of sector of it. And so I think, you know, that's the other thing. Slap really is about speech. Um, and so, you know, we need Section 230 for all, all the other great things the internet right. does for us. And, and right. And, and you know, and, and this is where the other aspect of Section 230 comes in that I think is is worth emphasizing, which is, you know, if you think of Section 230 as about, you know, just pointing you towards the, the right party for liability, you know, that, that, you know, makes a lot of sense. You're saying, you know, you don't blame the tool maker, you blame the person who actually, you know, did whatever illegal thing with the tool is. Um, and you, you focus the liability on the right party. And that is a mechanism that Section 230 does that is, you know, unrelated to the to, to anti-slap or slap lawsuits. Um, and, and I think is really valuable. And, you know, I mean, there is an argument that, um, you know, absent 230 courts would get there anyways, but that's a, a messy, long, convoluted process in which there may be many hiccups, including, you know, the kind of hiccup that led to Section 230 in the first place, which is the, you know, the Prodigy case uh, many years ago. Um, and so, you know, it there's so much of this that that's just kind of like deep in the legal weeds, but is really important for people to understand. And yet it feels like, um, it, it feels like not much of the debate has been there. Do you, you know, do you feel like, um, that there's, there is actual appetite among policymakers and folks to, to actually understand this? Because, you know, my experience has been kind of mixed on that front. <laughs> um, you know, no, um, I don't. <laughs> but I, you know, I think what I wanted to do is, you know, there have been great writing on um, some of these issues. Mm -hmm. You know, the Section two hundred and thirty is the procedural fast lane, um, the way it contributes to speech, um, the value of anti-slap laws. Um, you know, that's not new ground. What I really wanted to do was try and dig up some stories. Because I think people on the Hill do respond to stories. Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, having cases, um, you know, particularly if you can find a good case that, you know, happened in the representative's <laughs> district, yes. yeah. um, you know, maybe those are going to be things that um, are going to be useful for advocacy. Um, I think, you know, Injun did a great report um a couple of years ago on the cost to startups of, of you know litigation and and why mm -hmm. section 230 is so important you know i think just putting more kind of numbers behind that um you right. know i just wanted to put more kind of meat on the bones because i think one of the the problems that i see in the policy discussion is that when you make the arguments about how important Section 230 is to everyone outside of big tech, um, you know, people nod their heads and um, they're not taking it in. Um, right. And they also think that um, even to the extent it's true, it can be solved very easily with things like carving out smaller providers. Right. Um, and, you know, 
I think uh, you know, in Kobe Institute's amicus brief in Florida in particular, <laughs> you made a really good argument about how you know, small providers rely on big providers yeah. to, you know, run various parts of their businesses. Um, and, you know, so to think that Section 230 can be withdrawn or substantially changed and not have that impact roll down to you know the consumers of those services um i i think is unrealistic yeah yeah just the, the level of interconnection between everything here i mean it's kind of the nature of the internet um but I, I don't think people you know people think that these things can be compartmentalized and and you know the reality is is that you know that's that's really really difficult um, and yeah, I mean, that, that is one of the reasons why we highlighted that in, in the, in the brief that, that we filed, because so much of the discussion is always about big tech. Um, and, you know, and, and, <laughs> you know, we, we certainly do not qualify as big tech, but, but the fear is that, uh, you know, of the impact, um, on smaller companies and the ability to provide speech, you know, speech supporting services as well. Um. Anyways, uh, again, it's, it's really, uh, as you can tell, I really like this report. <laughs> uh, I'm I, glad somebody read the whole thing. So. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and I, I appreciate it. And so if you're listening to this and you, and you are interested in this stuff, I also suggest you read the whole report. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's long, but I would say it's very readable. It, it goes quick. At least it did for me. <laughs> uh, and it has, you know, charts and, and pictures. It's very nice. <laughs> uh, but it's, it, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm just really happy that, that these discussions are actually getting out there. You know, some of these are discussions I've had, you know, quietly with people. But, but you know, having this kind of information public and being talked about publicly, I think is just really, really valuable. And hopefully we'll get more people towards that level of understanding about the value of Section 230 and frankly, anti-slap laws as well, um, that I think is is just so key for more people to understand. So so thank you again for 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 doing that and going through and, and writing this report. Um, and again, if you're if you're listening to this, please go go read it. We'll link to it uh, in the show notes. And Thanks for taking the time to do this podcast as well. It's been great. I appreciate your help getting getting the word out. Sure, absolutely. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. Someone will get, huh? To grab a shovel and think of the tech. Huh? If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Huh?